Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Why is the state of New Hampshire such an active area for UFO encounters? How far back does it go as an active area? Are there connections with other paranormal activities there? Well, welcome to the 457th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul, and Ben has two more weeks left in the summer course he's taking, uh, and that is also taking him away from the show on Monday evenings. But for now, let's get right to our guest. Ryan Mullahy has been studying the UFO phenomenon in the state of New Hampshire and in New England in general for over 14 years. In 2011, he founded New Hampshire UFO Research, which investigates, documents, and preserves New Hampshire's UFO history. The website uh, is uh, uh, www.nhuforesearch.blogspot.com. I'll give him a chance to talk about that later. And it includes original articles on historic and current cases and up-to-date UFO news and sighting reports. Ryan has appeared on New Hampshire Public Radio, Independent Podcasts, and will be a speaker at the 2013 Exeter UFO Festival in, of course, Exeter, New Hampshire, on August 31st. And uh, feel free to call in this evening if you'd like. Give us a ring locally at 401-766-1240 or from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, 800-449-1240. So, Ryan, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. That's a pleasure. Uh, certainly, Ryan, uh, the most famous New Hampshire UFO case of all time must be the Betty and Barney Hill encounter of 1961. Uh, for those of who aren't familiar with that, that's the first alien abduction case, uh, alleged alien abduction case, to receive national media attention. Uh, we've had their niece, Kathleen Marden, a good friend of mine, and other guests on the show several times uh, to talk about that case, which took place near, of course, Exeter, and was the seed for today's Exeter UFO Festival. So what happened in that case, Ryan, if you could... Explain it for those who don't know about it. Sure. Um, Betty and Barney Hill were returning from a vacation in Canada with their dog, Delcy, and they were driving through Lancaster, New Hampshire, returning to Portsmouth, where they live. And Betty spotted a star-like object that caught her you know, attention, and she thought it looked a bit odd. So that drew her attention, and they were watching it as they drove through Lancaster, New Hampshire. And... As they were driving on their route, you know, they continued to be able to view the object, and they actually stopped at the Mount Cleveland uh, parking area to observe the object. And then they continued on their way, and they got closer to the Indian Head area, uh, Lincoln, New Hampshire area. And at that point, um, they were still able to see the craft, and they could see it a bit better. And at that point, um, they decided to stop the car on the road to get a better look, uh, Barty gun out with his binoculars. He was able to get a very close view through the binoculars of the craft and became uh, very frightened at what he saw. And so got back in the vehicle, and they you know, proceeded to start to leave the area at a high rate of speed. At that point, um, simultaneously, there was a series of buzzing sounds as well as um, vibrations that coincided with those buzzing sounds. And the next thing they knew, they were about 35 miles um, further down their their journey, and they just had a sense that something wasn't right. So that was the you know initial event that they had, and then after that, you know, they just had the feeling that there was more to the situation. And um, after that, they you know they 
sought the help of um, therapists and eventually underwent hypnosis to try and recall more of what they experienced. That was several years later, right? Uh, yeah, that was. I believe that was around um, sixty-three, sixty-four. Mm-hmm, I think so. Yeah. When they, you know, they actually went to a local Exeter, uh, I believe, psychologist who then referred them to Dr. Benjamin Simon, mm-hmm. who was um, part of the military's um, medical actual hypnosis uh, program, and he actually treated people that were victims of um, World War II PTSD, and he used medical hypnosis to treat these people for that. So they were referred to him, and he was the one that conducted the hypnosis sessions for Betty and Barney. Okay. And what was the result of the hypnosis sessions? Uh, well, the result was that they were they were hypnotized separately, and, you know, they gave their accounts of what happened, and basically, you know, a very, uh, very exciting and interesting uh, story was given where they were taken aboard a craft and they were examined and there was some interaction with the beings and then they were left back at their car. Okay. This had, as I recall, some of the classic characteristics of an abduction case as we would we know it today, the missing time, mm-hmm. uh, this sort of thing. Well, how many hours was it? I don't remember. Between uh, when they last re- remembered seeing the craft and when they were sort of back on the road? Um, well, initially they, they didn't, you know, they didn't know exactly how much time. They just realized that when they got back to Portsmouth, it was already daylight was coming up and they should have arrived back in Portsmouth when it was still nighttime. So that was the first indication that there was something off with the time. And then after the fact, when they started to, you know, really kind of scrutinize closer the night and the course of events is when they realized, I believe it's approximately two to three hours that is believed that might have been missing. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, One thing that strikes me as... um interesting here is well in those days as you know ryan everyone who believed in ufos assumed and a lot of people still assume uh when these are not explainable in any earthly way that they're nuts and bolts vehicles from other planets and indeed i, I seem to recall in uh, part of the betty and barney hill case them seeing uh, windows with people in the craft sort of looking at them or waving to them or something and it was mm-hmm. a, yeah uh, because I think that that particular understanding is, uh, and again, I mean, they were there and I wasn't. Um, that, that's what our, our limited understanding kind of allows for, is a nuts and bolts craft from other, other, another planet. Uh, but we, um, now that we know or think we know more about the universe, and indeed the multiverse, as you might say, we're hearing things like time travelers, space-time slips, interdimensional travelers, even spiritual entities. Now, with that in mind, what say you about cases like the Hills? Should they be reinterpreted? Um, well, I think, I mean, uh, you know, I think it's, it depends on, you know, everybody's individual in, interpretation of that case. Um, I think that, you know, like Jacques Vallée um, was one of the first ufologists to, um, to bring up the possibility of the connection between the paranormal and UFOs, and at the time, in 1969, it wasn't a very popular opinion with, you know, the nuts and bolts ufologists. Um, so I think that's something that over time, from the late 60s, I think that people have become more open to it. Um, as far as my own interpretation of the Hill case, uh, I try to keep a pretty open mind with UFO cases, and um, 
you know, I'm very open to the possibility that UFOs and other paranormal events could be connected. Sure. So I I think it's good for people, you know, to answer your question, to keep an open mind with things like this and, you know, always leave it open for the possibility that they could be somehow connected. Sure. Well, fair enough. Uh, I've always been intrigued by the buzzing sound that was reported. Uh, What what do you think that might have been? Well, it's interesting because the buzz, uh, you mean the beeps that they heard? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, the beeps, like, as I said, they coincided with vibrations that were felt inside the vehicle, and these beeps were heard um, right as they were, you know, taking off from the location where they were parked, and then they were heard again um, when they found themselves further down their route. Um, one interesting thing is after after this happened, one of the pieces of, you know, physical evidence that was, you know, viewed by people is there was a series of polished circles on the trunk of Betty and Barney Hill's car. And um, at the advice of somebody, Benny took a, a compass and placed it over these circles. And whenever she would place the compass over the circles, the compass would spin. So these were there were marks left on the craft, and Betty and Barney did seem to feel that those marks were somehow connected to these beeps and the vibration. That's interesting. It's funny uh, that, that, that you bring that up because we bring a compass with us on, we being Ben and myself, on paranormal cases. And I, I've had it act in exactly the same manner in cases that, that supposedly have nothing whatsoever to do with UFOs. So again, you know, possible parallels here. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Now, also under hypnosis, I understand uh, there came out stories of uh, medical examination, the sort of thing, again, that you would would associate with the classic UFO abduction experience. And also a star map. Can you tell us about the star map? Um, I know a bit about the star map. Betty, after her her examination was actually done um, sooner than Barney's, so she actually had a conversation with uh, the being that she was dealing with. And uh, she noticed that there was a map on the wall in the room and asked about it. And, you know, he, he discussed it a bit with her. And uh, she asked where he was on the map, where the, his planet was. And he kind of funnily replied, well, do you, do you know where you are on this map? And she said no. And he said, well, <laughs> then you wouldn't be able to, you know, make any sense of what I told you. So there was a little exchange with that. And um, Betty was able to draw this map under hypnosis and... Later on, um, a young lady named Marjorie Fish, at the time, um, she took the map and started creating models of known star systems, and um, she felt that she found a match to the Betty and Barney Hill star map in a particular star system. Hmm. How far away? That I, I, I don't mean to keep hitting you with things you might not know, oh, but I, you okay. got me interested here. Of course. Yeah, no, um, I don't know the exact distance. I know it's the uh, Zeta Reticuli star oh. system, okay. which I believe is what she identified the map to match. Um, I know that that I don't know the distance off top of my head. I, I do, but I can't think of it right now. I don't know. Haven't been there lately. <laughs> um, Ryan, in looking at your work, Ben and I were fascinated with the UFO flap that that you report as taking place in New Hampshire in July 1947, the same month as the famous or infamous Roswell UFO crash in Roswell, New Mexico. Now, neither of us had ever heard of that flap in New Hampshire. What's uh, what's that about? Well, during that week, uh, July, you know, from July, I believe, 5th 
on, um, there were UFOs, there was a huge flap going on across the country and possibly the world. So there were things being spotted, not in just Roswell, but all over the country. And during that week, um, there was a number of UFO reports made in New Hampshire, um, one of which, interestingly enough, was the son of then-governor of New Hampshire, um, Thomas, or Charlesdale, sorry, and uh, he was actually a military pilot and was flying with a friend and uh, spotted a UFO while he was flying. So that was one report that came in on July 7th. And mm -hmm. then also, actually, correct, uh, July 5th. And then on July 7th, there was an interesting event where um, some metallic debris uh, came down from the sky into a field in West Ringe, New Hampshire. Um, now, no UFO was sighted in this, but it's interesting because at the time, Project Sign, Project Grudge, or Project Blue Book haven't even started yet. So at the time, the F FBI was um, investigating you know, reports of this nature, and, and uh, interestingly enough, this particular West Ringe case was part of the FBI's uh, X-Files, which mm. was actually a real thing. Um, all, of, all of the things that were kind of outside of the norm for FBI investigation at the time would be labeled Security Matter X, so that's where, you know, the title for the TV show X-Files originates. I didn't know that. Well, I so the, uh, the the notion of the FBI investigating all this business uh, round about the late forties, would you say that the government really did not know what was going on just yet? Um, it's hard to say whether they knew what was going on. It's hard to know whether they still know what's going. I mean, I, whoever's behind this, if you know whatever is going on, I, I often wonder if the government isn't as much a victim as we are. Yeah, it's it's really you know whenever anybody asks me that question, I get asked that a lot. Um, you know, what I've found just from, you know, I try and base a lot of my research on declassified documents and things of that nature. And yeah. um, one thing that you find when you look at the declassified Blue Book documents, and also now the FBI has the vault, which is all of their declassified UFO documents up online for people to view. Once you take a look at the sheer volume of documents that were once, you know, classified dealing with these reports, you see that, you know, the FBI was, at the time, they were taking it very seriously. They were looking into a number of cases. They were, you know, top secret or confidential at the time. So it's hard to say what they know, but it's very telling that they were very interested and concerned, and they were putting a good amount of resources into looking into these sightings. So um, it's hard to say how much they knew, but they were very interested. Well, having rubbed elbows with the intelligence community a little in my life, the uh, there was a concern at the time, of course, that these were Soviet, and mm -hmm. uh, what kind of technology did they have? And of course, the, during World War II, you had the the so-called Foo Fighters, the bombers over Europe uh, of both sides would see these things, and mm -hmm. the Germans thought they were Allied, and the Allies thought they were German, and nobody knew what was going on. And uh, there there are military records going back at least as far as the Civil War about strange sightings in the sky, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and of course, the, the whole UFO phenomenon goes back thousands of years. I mean, you get cave paintings for heaven's sake with these things. Yeah. So, um, it, it's it's not a new not a new situation, but we often find, uh, well, a, a frequent guest of ours, Frank Fischino, 
uh, who was an expert, particularly on the Flatwoods Monster incidents of 1952, uh, he points out a similar pattern of UFO paths over the United States surrounding that incident. Uh, the, uh, some, the, uh, the green monster, supposedly the thing landed in the Flatwoods area of West Virginia and uh, the creatures were seen and this sort of thing. Um, ben and I have um, sort of think these are kind of tips of the iceberg involving everything from ghosts to UFOs. We've seen that in cases from Rendlesham Forest in England to our current project in uh, central Connecticut. Uh, most paranormal investigators don't look for patterns like that, especially when they might connect different areas of the paranormal. But I understand that some UFO researchers are taking that pan-paranormal approach, as you might say, more seriously. And I know you're not a, an investigator as such or a researcher, but have you as a researcher seen any trend in that direction? I know we've touched on it already. And do you have any thoughts on it uh, beyond what you've said? Um, you know, I think it's good for anybody, you know, investigating UFOs or at cryptozoology or ghosts. You know, the, you want to look for patterns because, you know, whenever you assemble data on anything, it's very important that the, the data be analyzed and, you know, anything that, you know, common factors, it's very important to, you know, pay attention to those because that's going to be, you know, the insights you're going to glean from the data that you're gathering. So, you know, I think it's very important to, you know, look for patterns, look for similarities and differences and contrasts when you're, you know, examining any data of that sort. Um, you know, the only thing I can think of um, other than what I had mentioned earlier is... Um, one thing I did come across a few times um, in doing an article on the Great Airship Invasion in 1909, mm-hmm. as well as that period of time in 1947, um, there was coinciding Phantom Panther sightings. Interesting. In the northern Massachusetts as well as New Hampshire area. Now, the ones that I found for 1909 were in the northern Massachusetts area, whereas um, the ones that coincided with 1947, and I think they went up to about 1952, those were in New Hampshire. And, you know, at the time, from what I can gather, I haven't finished my research on that yet. It's something I've recently started working on, but um, it was quite a thing going on in New Hampshire at the time. There was a lot of sightings by credible people, so that's one connection that I've taken note of where there's such a drastic span of time from 1909 to 1947, and both of these UFO flaps had the Phantom Panther um, sightings as well. So that's one thing I can think of. That's extremely interesting because... Uh, I've done some research on that in New England and I've written a few articles about it. And the, uh, the uh, panther is one thing, but you know, Bigfoot is something else. I mean, if it, whatever the cause of that may be, but the panther thing in New England, panthers or or the eastern cougar used to be native, of course. And uh, I, I have uh, I have relatives who've seen them in their yard. I mean, they are back. Uh, there's so many deer where you have prey; there'll be predators. So it's not just coyotes, it's, it's these things are back. But in that period, that was very unusual. Uh, was this a black panther, or were they black panthers? Or Well, it, it's, um, as far as, I'm trying to remember because I haven't looked at it in quite some time, but um, I believe they were, you know, described as, there was a number of words used to describe because some people would call them cougars, panthers. Um, so there's a lot of words sometimes used that all are kind of referring to the same thing. Yeah, <clears throat> um, but it was all basically descriptions of large black cats or mm-hmm. dark cats that didn't appear native to the area. Well, I'm not, now this is a little off topic, but I mean, UFOs are sometimes associated with the sightings of uh, cryptids, as they're called, you know, unexplained mm-hmm. creatures. 
and I was I had just finished an article for a British magazine about the uh, which was studying the the uh, appearances of these large cats in England, which to which they are not native, at least haven't been since the Ice Age or so. <laughs> and I was reporting that the, uh, the panther apparently was back in New England, even though the government won't admit it because then they'd have to pay for it to mm. protect it. But I was coming back through Burrowville, Rhode Island, right on Route 102 here, which our local listeners would know all about. It was dark. It was uh, just after Christmas. It was December. And I saw run in front of my car, my whole family was with me, a black panther. It wasn't very big, and it wasn't, but it was far too big for a domestic cat. And you know what you look for? You look for the tail. The, the tail sticking up in the It's very, very distinctive. And sure enough, so... And they have been reported in Rhode Island, but with or without UFOs, I don't know. Okay, so let's sort of get back on uh, on our subject there. Uh, now, I understand, Ryan, that there have been sightings uh, of UFOs by the military and the police in New Hampshire. Can you tell us what that was going What was going on there? Sure. Um, there, yeah, there's been a lot of really excellent sightings, um, you know, by police officers in New Hampshire. Um, and, you know, one of the cases that is definitely not as well known as the Betty and Barney Hill case, but um, I think is equally significant is the incident in Exeter case, which happened in September, uh, excuse me, September 3rd, 1965, and um, that involved a young man having a UFO sighting. Um, he was able to catch a ride to the police station and let them know about it, and interestingly enough, uh, another officer on patrol had just left a woman that he had found parked on the side of the road who had claimed a red UFO was flying, dipping down at her car, and she was very distraught. So when, you know, this young man, Norman Muscarello, came in and told the police, um, they may not have normally believed him, but because they had just had this other report that they dealt with, um, they took his report very seriously, and they knew him to be, you know, a good kid who was no-nonsense. So... Um, one of the officers returned to the field, which was actually in Kensington, New Hampshire, which is right outside of Exeter. He returned to the field with Norman, and at first they didn't see anything. They went out into the middle of the field, but when they got into the middle of the field, the UFO that Norman had seen, or a UFO, um, I'm not quite positive it was the same one, but we can assume, uh, came over the trees and was right above them in the field, um, no more than a few hundred feet above them. And the field turned red. Um, the officer and Norman were very scared. The no- officer dropped to his knee and pulled his revolver, but then grabbed Norman, and they fleed to the cruiser because he was scared of radiation because of the red light that they were you know, enveloped in. So mm. they ran to the police car. He radio dispatched that he was seeing it too and another officer who was already en route showed up moments later and all three of them you know witnessed this craft that then took off um so that's a very significant case because um at the time it happened you know 65 and 66 was another big ufo flap and you know at first project blue book kind of tried to explain it away. Um, There was a number of explanations that were offered up for the sighting. Um, Stars and planets, um, the lights at Pease Air Force Base, a banner plane. Uh, There was a number of different things that were put forward, a refueling mission. Um, But all of those things were proven to be false. And, you know, one of the reasons why the case is so important is in 1966, uh, Gerald Ford, 
he was having so many sightings in his district in Michigan that he actually called for a congressional hearing on UFOs, and Exeter was one of the key cases highlighted in those hearings. And, you know, to the to the pleasure of the officers involved and Raymond Fowler, who was the key investigator, uh, J.L. and Heineken and had to admit under oath that that case was, in fact, an unknown, and, it, you know, it wasn't any of these other things that they had earlier explained it. So... I think for that reason, it's a you know a very significant case. You know, Dr. Heineck being the Air Force's chief investigator at the time. Uh, okay, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON twelve forty AM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley with our guest Ryan Mullahy and UFOs of New Hampshire. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Russ Gorman. If you're concerned about 2013, relax. It's actually the 14th year of the 21st century, and a great time to get an astrological chart done. This year, I'm offering an added feature. I'm including lucky numbers on request with each chart or update at no extra fee. Discover what tomorrow will bring in regard to money, health, job, relationships, or possible windfalls. Call me at 401-333-4048 for information on getting your individual chart or update. Give your life a fresh start. Welcome the changes the planets are providing. I'm also available for private parties and speaking engagements for groups. Look forward to enjoying your future this year. Call me, Russ Gorman, at 401-333-4048. Radio! I wanted to just uh, give you a word about USA Cares. That's one of the cha- the charities that Ben and I have adopted on both our shows. And USA Cares provides financial and advocacy assistance to post-9-11 active duty U.S. military personnel, veterans, and their families. There are never any fees or repayments, and the charity relies on donations of individuals and institutions. And they would like to start a chapter here in Rhode Island. Uh, all we need are seven motivated people. Uh, the three main goals of the chapter, of course, fundraising, outreach, and awareness to military families in need. And if you'd be interested in helping to start this chapter, please contact me at paul at behindtheparanormal.com or 401 Very good. Let's get back to our guest, Ryan Mullahy, and we're talking about UFOs over New Hampshire. I think we should point out at this point, Ryan, and you can um, uh, expand on anything I might say here, that UFOs can be anything, anything in the sky. Uh, we're not necessarily implying that all these things are alien craft or multidimensional time travelers or anything like this. I remember an incident uh, down in Cumberland, Rhode Island, uh, right in our listening area here when I lived there, and there was a, a large light that came right over, as a matter of fact, our house, and uh, we lived in kind of an isolated area at the time, and a friend of ours saw it and called me at the Providence Journal, where I was an editor at the time, and knew I was into this stuff, and said, I saw a UFO over your house. This is not the sort of person who would uh, hallucinate or a very serious uh, feet-on-the-ground type of person. So uh, as it turns out, people all over the place saw this thing. And what it was was a, a lighted advertising blimp without the advertising. And it was headed for the Hudson Valley to have, I guess, the lettering put on or whatever they were doing. But there were all kinds of UFO people were pulling over and all this. So there were all sorts of explanations for these things. And uh, 
but I think the cases you're talking about are ones that were examined for this kind of thing and were found to be unexplainable in any other way. Is that correct? That is correct, and I think that's a great clarification that, you know, UFO means unidentified flying object. It doesn't necessarily mean spacecraft or, you know, alien craft. I think, you know, some of the cases that we're discussing, obviously Betty and Barney Hill, and even with the Exeter case, um, it's, you know, there have been some people, you know, that have tried to, you know, say that it could be some sort of conventional craft as far as the instant exit or, but, um, you know, the quality of the witnesses in that case, they were both ex-military, they were both police officers. So, you know, I think we should always assume UFO just means an object that can't be identified. Right. Well, let's, I want to get to this before, because we're burning up this hour very quickly. Great conversation. Oh, uh, thank you. This is from Alicia. Uh, it doesn't say where she's from, but comments that she recently discovered our show. And Alicia writes, being that you are in New England, I was wondering if you have done any research or have heard about any of the UFO experiences in the Franconia Notch area of New Hampshire. A lot of people are familiar with the story of Bar- uh, Barney and Betty Hill, but I discovered when I, when I lived in Littleton that many, many people have seen things in the skies as well as in the woods. I personally have had some odd experiences in the Sandwich Range, I'm not familiar with that, uh, and I'm sure you are. And now avoid hiking there. Although I have been unable to find many other strange accounts of that area, so I may be getting creeped out over nothing. Um, I'll stop there and let you... Uh, with the Franconia Notch area, given what we've said about flap areas like Rendlesham or Central Connecticut or whatever, I'm wondering if the Franconia Notch area, where the Betty and Barney Hill thing, as I understand it, more or less occurred... Um, have you heard anything, heard anything about of sightings? Is that a, would you call that an area where UFO sightings are common, or things in the woods, anything like that? Have you heard about any of that? It is. It actually, it is a. It's it, surprisingly, there's been things you know sighted in that area all the way back to the Indians. Hmm. Um, and you know that area, from what I've I've researched, um, you know, there's been a lot of sightings in that area from people that are in the local campgrounds in the summer. Um, so there have been, from what I've seen, there have been a number of reports and, um, you know, to what your, your, the person that waged the question, um, one phenomenon that I've seen a, a bit in New Hampshire is a phenomenon where a UFO isn't necessarily spotted, but some sort of glowing light is either spotted in the woods or on a, a mountain or a hillside in an area where there's no houses and where there shouldn't be any light. So that's, that's a phenomenon that's been observed quite a bit in New Hampshire. Um, and, you know, the Indians actually, you know, observe that in that area as well as in Maine. Hmm. Um, so it goes, you know, goes for pretty far back. And, you know, there's been cases of that all the way up to recently in New Hampshire. That's very interesting. It's funny. We just had Ted Phillips uh, on a few weeks ago. And Ted is, uh, as, for those of you who didn't hear the show, is a... Uh, um, I suppose the sort of the Superman of of gathering information on UFO landings and the physical traces thereof and physical evidence for this, and he has thousands of cases, and he's working with an area. He and other people are working right now in an area that they they refer to as Marley Woods in mm-hmm. Missouri, and that's not its real name, but <clears throat> that's his code name, I guess, or something. So people won't find out where it is. But he refers to precisely what you just talked about: uh, lights in the woods and. Um, UFOs overhead, landings, and all this kind of thing. Um, Rendlesham Forest. We um, uh, took several pictures, Ben and I, when we were there, and w- would show 
what I suppose would commonly be known in the paranormal world as, or in the pop paranormal world as orbs, or these balls of light. They do seem to be kind of ubiquitous. In my opinion, which is um, as usual a minority opinion, I think these could be plasma-based life forms that were speculated about by astrobiologists and even Carl Sagan. Uh, that they may, they apparently feed, in my experience, around the boundaries where things have sort of thinned out and pe- things come back and forth through these these electromagnetic boundaries between these what f- some physicists believe are parallel worlds. So I mean, th- who knows? But uh, I'm intrigued whenever I hear about these balls of light. Uh, what what other um, recent cases have occurred in New Hampshire? Well, um, you know. The- there haven't been a whole lot of, you know, kind of significant cases, you know, that you could compare to, say, Betty and Barney Hill or um, the incident in Exeter, I would say, recently. Um, but, you know, over the past few years, there have been a lot of, you know, kind of orb, orange light type things spotted in the sky in New Hampshire. There's been a lot of reports of that. Um, but, you know, there, nothing really that comes to mind of recent that that's pretty major okay yeah but you know i'm thinking of franconia notch as we talk here and so many ufo incidents seem to occur in mountainous areas uh and of course new hampshire is very mountainous for for our part of the country you know the people in the west laugh and say well they're just hills but nevertheless uh, (laughs) one wonders about the seismic Connections, if any, with some of these things. There, there have been experiments done with the so-called earthquake, trying to uh, duplicate the or replicate the so-called earthquake lights that are sometimes seen when seismic activity is going on and just before earthquakes. But in the lab, uh, what they've and I've seen some of these experiments. They've only been able to create uh, ones uh, lights in in the what would have been the sky, I guess, in the lab environment uh, that lasts for only a, a second or two, whereas these things seem to act not only um, intelligently but also for quite some time in, in some cases. So uh, have you noticed uh, a lot of activity in mountainous areas in particular, or is that just coincidence? Um, no, I think that, I think that is a, a commonality. Um, you know, there have been a number of sightings um, near the Mount Monadnock region, um, which is the area I'm in, and, you know, there's a tradition all the way back to the 60s of, you know, up to present of things being spotted in that area, as well as, like we said, um, you know, the White Mountains, uh, Franconia Notch, the Lincoln area, Um, there's been a number of things spotted there, so, you know, I definitely think that is safe to say, you know, what the reason is, is tough, you know, I can only theorize on that, um, you know, uh, with the White Mountain area, you know, it's my theory, one of my theories on it is is that, you know, when you're in an area like that, it's very easy for a craft to dip down in a valley mm-hmm. and, you know, not be, only be visible to, you know, what's within that valley, you know, as, as opposed to, you know, if you're up in the sky and there's nothing obstructing your view, people, you know, so I think it could be... Um, Maybe, you know, for whatever reason, the remoteness of, you know, the mountains in that region, but I could really only theorize on that. One of the things that goes with the UFO uh, folklore or fact, whatever, however you look at it, and I'm thinking of the, particularly of the things like the Mothman incidents in West Virginia that John Keel documented, uh, that had a lot of 
other paranormal events going on at the same time. And that's the, the, the so-called men in black phenomenon. Okay, these people coming around and telling you not to talk about what you saw or asking you what you saw or whatever. Is there any of that uh, in any of these New Hampshire cases going back as far as you realize? Was anybody harassed by weird guys or anything like this? Um, nothing, nothing men in black in nature that I've come across. Um, although, you know, in the incident exeter case, uh, Norman Muscarello, you know, the, the boy witness that witnessed the craft with the other cops, um, him and his mother were visited by some military and they, they said that they were told to, you know, to keep their mouth shut about the event. Um, there were also, this I haven't confirmed, but there was also a report that, um, you know, the day after their sighting, it hit the paper pretty quick because when Norman came into the police station, the local reporter was there. So he got the scoop in the middle of the night, and he was able to get it into the next day's edition. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, and there was a report of a, somebody from Pease that was going around trying to buy all the newspapers. So that <laughs> Now, you know, whether that is true or not, I haven't been able to confirm that, but I always thought that was a, you know, a very interesting story, be, you know, to try and kind of... Um, damage control, you know, how much of the story got out. But um, as far as actual men in black, um, I, I really, nothing, you know, of the mysterious nature of the men in the black suits, uh, nothing I've heard of, no. Well, that, that's pretty good then, because uh, they can be pretty scary, as I'm told, and I've talked to people who've actually seen them, supposedly. But So I guess if you're going to see a UFO, New Hampshire's the place to do it. <laughs> yeah. Right. But speaking of Peace Air Force Base and places like that, uh, have you uncovered particular activity around military bases that that's part of the ufo thing that supposedly there, there's been some concern about them hanging around military bases particularly if there are nukes i'm not aware of any nukes at peas but who knows oh well actually very interesting on that um there's a very interesting uh roswell peas connection um that dean merchant who is actually the creator of the exeter festival and he's also a new hampshire ufologist um and writer yeah, he's, done, yeah, yeah. he's done some work on this and um, basically Roswell at the time of the UFO incident was the home of the 509th bomb group which is the most elite nuclear bomb group they were the ones that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and interestingly enough in 1958 the 509th bomb group was moved from Roswell to Pease Air Force Base I didn't no kidding I didn't know that yes it was and you know there was a number of sightings that were um, that have you know were made from Pease some that involved both radar and visual confirmation so um, that's you know a very interesting connection between Roswell and Pease that a lot of people don't know um, so that's fairly significant and um, you know, where they were housing, you know, the nuclear weapons at the time there, um, you know, it makes it a very important location. So there were a number of sightings by military personnel. Yeah, because we, uh, well, concentrating on the Rendlesham case, Ben and I were over there last September, and uh, we talked with several of the witnesses, or one of the witnesses, and we have done a lot on the air with that. Uh, the concern was the uh, the WSA, or the weapon storage area, which was not supposed to have nukes by treaty, uh, but apparently it did. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing came over with shining beams down, and, and you can never get a full story out of this, but uh, people like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, would tell you that some, in some cases, uh, nuclear missiles were stolen somehow, uh, transported out of the, the complex somehow uh, when this thing was shining these beams down, uh, or were uh, uh, deactivated, 
or in some cases the missiles were retargeted. And I've never, I know this isn't Rendlesham I'm talking about, this is in mm-hmm. general. And I'm wondering, retargeted to where? And I've never been able to get a, wow. that, that, that's kind of disconcerting in itself. I've never been able to get an answer on that, but we're still working on it. So, very interesting about Pisa. I never knew that. Um, is, be, going beyond things happening at the base there, have you ever uncovered in your research anything about, um, uh, clandestine activity by whether it be the government or whoever is behind the government or, or whatever, mm-hmm. whoever is doing this stuff with UFOs, if, if indeed such things are actually occurring, um, strange bases or anything like that going, because I, I, I used to not believe that kind of thing myself until we ran into it ourselves in Connecticut. Um, we, a lot of weird stuff going on. Uh, anything like that ever turn up in any of these cases or is it just sightings um. and the occasional abduction? Yeah, no, not nothing, no, you know, clandestine bases or, you know, anything like that. You know, like I said, I mean, looking over the Project Blue Book documents, you know, over the years from 47 forward, um, you know, it's it's obvious that the, there was a lot of military involvement in investigating, um, you know, these cases that were reported in, in Exeter and around Pease. Um, so there's, you know, there's definitely being investigated but as far as clandestine um nothing you know nothing that i've seen has alluded to anything clandestine okay now before we burn up the hour here i want to give you a chance to talk about first of all your own website and your own work and about the exeter ufo festival okay and uh you're going to be speaking i understand there and uh, what are you going to be talking about um, um yeah i'm actually going to be doing a lecture about the the exeter case mm-hmm and um, basically, uh, about two years ago, the Skeptical Inquirer um, released an article claiming to have explained the Exeter case. And um, the basis of my lecture is going to be, you know, presenting data to to show that that is not the case. Mm-hmm. That sounds interesting. I hope we'll be there to hear it. We usually attend. Uh, we'll see. Uh, it's funny you mentioned the National Enquirer. Oddly enough, uh, during that uh, case I'm always talking about on the air, a 1974 Bridgeport poltergeist outbreak, which I'd like to find out if there were any UFOs seen in the area at the time. <laughs> these were pretty alien beings, so to speak. Um, the uh, papers all over the world picked this up because the people I was working with didn't care what they said to the press and everything. It all went out. <clears throat> the only paper in the world that I saw that got the story right was the National Enquirer. You could, have, you could have knocked me over with a feather. So I've always kind of had a, you know, they kind of, their stock kind of went up in my opinion. I later became a professional journalist, and I always say that, you know, but don't be too sure, don't be too sure what not to believe. I learned that in journalism. Anyway. Definitely. definitely. It was actually, it was actually the skeptical inquirer that, that released the thing about the incident in Exeter, but to what you're saying, um, it's interesting because I've done a bit of research, and um, actually Tim Benal of Benal of America actually interviewed somebody that worked at National Enquirer during kind of the heyday back in the, I believe it was the 70s or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And um, from what I understand, they actually, they, believe it or not, did pretty pretty good investigations of things. As far as the UFO, obviously there was a lot of, you know, things in the Enquirer kind of known as not a very credible paper, but... Um, um, there's another UF, police UFO case from New Hampshire that happened in 1974, which is a very well-documented case, and the Inquirer actually ran an article on that. So I think you're right that, um, 
you know, I think we everybody has kind of, you know, a certain notion about the National Enquirer, but the more I've, you know, researched into it, it sounds like they actually did a pretty decent job of looking into these UFO cases. Well, they certainly have their moments. But anyway, I, you know, I've always noticed, Ryan, and this is my personal opinion, and, and maybe it's because we are relatively new to the UFO uh, thing, and, and we only get into it because we had ghost cases that led right into UFO cases, because we should, Ben and I spend years on cases, and I don't know if too many other people do that, because the more you um, research it, the more you find, or others, cynics might say, the more you you know think you find. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, I've always found in general that UFO investigators are somewhat more credible than most ghost researchers. Um, that's that's a um, an arbitrary perhaps opinion on my part, but that's my impression. Mm-hmm. Um, you still find though the feuds, the intrigues, the politics, uh, reluctance to share information, but not as much uh, as you do among the ghost crowd, in my opinion. Am I wrong about that, or is uh, UFO research a mess too? Um, you know, ufology is is in kind of a tough spot, and I think you you do unfortunately find a bit of that in ufology, and you know, I think. I think that stems from, you know, a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, I can only speak for myself. You know, I've been researching UFOs for 14 years, and I've only, you know, been public with my research for the past two years. So, um, you know, for me, I, you know, I tend to approach it with respect and humility. And, um, you know, so that's kind of how I approach it. But what you do encounter in ufology a lot is, you can encounter people that aren't necessarily doing good research or, you know, they're doing things for the wrong reasons, whether they want to be a UFO personality or, you know, they want attention or fame or whatnot. So um, I think that's where the problem can come in where, you know, when somebody's seeking that sort of attention because of UFO research, um, they're going to tend to be competitive about UFO research. Um, so I think you run into a little bit of competitiveness. And then as far as sharing information, it's difficult because um, obviously, you know, you want to share your research with people. You know, that's part of the reason why you do it. But I think sometimes you get in a situation where you know there's other organizations that aren't necessarily doing good research and doing things and are kind of intently watching what other people that are doing good work are doing. And so um, you get into a situation where, uh, you know, it's not that you don't want to share information, but you also, you know, you don't want other people just, you know, coming along and co-opting what you're doing. So I, I think there's a bit of competitiveness, and I think that, you know, everybody's in, you know, whether it's ghost research or UFO research, everybody has a different reason why they're doing it. And um, I think, you know, the yeah. people, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm listening to you describe this, and, and I, I, I feel like I'm, I could also be listening to a description of mainstream science. Yeah, you know. I mean... But it, there is a difference with mainstream science. There is a certain academic discipline mm-hmm. and peer review. For what they're worth, I think they are val- very valuable, mm-hmm. but you don't have that seemingly in UFO research or paranormal research in general. You're right, you know, and, the, and the, it's, that's something that's come up a lot in the past year, and I, you know, I think peer research is a great idea, and, you know, with any of the things that I, you know, articles I do, my research articles, I, you know, give extensive references, I welcome people to, I want people to check out my work, you know, like, I I welcome that, um, 
but one of the problems you run into is what happens if your peers or the people, you know, maybe that are UFO investigators in your general area, you know, what if your peers, in that sense, maybe you're, you're not, you know, 100% about the quality of their work. So that's where the problem comes in is, you know, if you don't feel you have peers that are of the quality that they should be judging your, you know, your material. So I guess that's where I see a problem with the peer research. It's um, referring back to what I just said, where there's competitiveness with some people. Um, peer research, I think, because of the competitiveness in ufology, it can be difficult, but I think it's necessary. I see what you mean, Ryan. Yeah. Well, because that begs the question, you know, what qualifies someone to investigate as opposed to research, as you do, to investigate UFO cases? Um, I think, you know, what should qualify somebody to investigate a UFO case is, you know, and I've, I've taken a look at the MUFON um, training manual, and, you know, it's, it's a combination of, you know, scientific knowledge, knowing how to take samples, you know, not contaminate them, how to approach um, different situations. If, you know, like in the case of Ted Phillips, um, you know, with like landing cases, you know, you have to approach these things with caution. Um, you know, there's concerns about radiation and, you know, so depend, you know, I think people have to have a good grasp of um, science and, you know, documenting things and preserving data and taking different astronomical, you know, readings. And I, I think it's important that somebody have, have a grounding in that. Um, but I also think it's important that those people, besides having that scientific background, they have a very good understanding of, you know, the history of UFOs and what has come, you know, beforehand. Well, that um, sounds very sensible. So uh, let's um, wrap it up on the note that um, what, in your opinion, is, I suppose, a garden variety UFO? <laughs> I know that's a difficult question. could be many explanations, as we said. But what, in your opinion, was the Betty and Barney Hillcraft? And what about the, the ones that the police are? Do you have um, an opinion on that? I know we're just speculating here, of course. Um, you know, I, I don't... Uh, I guess my opinion on it would be... Um, that, you know, it was some sort of, you know, these were craft or phenomenon that appear to be, um, you know, not in control by humans. Um, but I don't, I don't like to go very further than that because, you know, like I try and, you know, approach things from a center of gravity and I try not to, um, you know, I like to theorize, but, you know, I'm not sure it's, it's a phenomenon that, you know, is, is pretty compelling, but I, I wouldn't feel comfortable, um, you know, taking a guess on it. Well, that's fair enough. I will point out, though, that there is a book, and I, I wish I don't have it in front of me because I lent it to my cousin. <laughs> I was very mm -hmm. curious. Uh, something like the Fire Officer's Guide to Emergency. It's present in every fire station and police station in the country, and it has an entire chapter on what to do if there's a UFO crash. Oh, I'm familiar with this. Yeah, yeah. and this is not some science fiction book. It, it's, the, it's the common manual for particularly firefighters in situations uh, where there are, there are emergencies that could threaten a community. And uh, for those who are skeptical about that, I mean, as we all should be to a certain extent, I think that probably gives some kind mm -hmm. of, a, of a, a little bit of food for thought there. Definitely. So, Ryan, would you tell us once again, when is and where is the Exeter UFO uh, Festival 2013? Uh, it's August 31st, 2013. It's going to be in downtown Exeter, New Hampshire, and it's at the historic Exeter Town Hall. Um, 
And there's, you know, it consists of lectures. I will be speaking as well as uh, Richard Dolan and some other, you know, great UFO speakers. And there's, um, there's typically activities across the town. Um, you know, there's family activities as well as, you know, food and different things going on. Okay, very good. And, and I can testify on behalf of Ben and myself that it's a lot of fun. There are a lot of great people there. It's, uh, there are a lot of interesting things to see. The whole, all the merchants get involved on the, on the, the in the neighborhood there. And it's, it's just, a, there's a little parade with the kids dressed up. It's, it's really a lot, a lot of fun, a lot of good food, a lot of interesting information. And, uh, well, Ryan, I want to thank you for being on. And maybe we'll see you up there. Ben and I, uh, for several years, uh, uh, couldn't last year because we were in England, uh, but uh, this year uh, we, we might be up there and uh, look for the CBS radio banner and uh, Paul and Ben Eno, and we'll uh, be happy to. Uh, we, we usually record interviews and uh, try and play, play them later on the air and, and uh, all kinds of things, and we really get to meet people who are interested in the subject. So, Ryan, again, thank you very much. We'll look forward, hopefully, to seeing you up there. Uh, if not, we'll, we might have you back on the show before that. We want to continue to promote it. It is a great event, and uh, I understand the Proceeds go to uh, local charities. Yes, the, the local Kiwanis has now taken over the you know the organization, the festival, and they take the profits and they give to numerous local Exeter charities. Excellent, very good. And uh, just before we go, could you mention the other speakers right now? You said uh, the Dolans are going to be there. Yeah, Richard Dolan, Karen Dolan, okay. and then there's also Robert Schroeder, who's um, who's from Massachusetts, who's going to be speaking on UFOs. And also there's Jan Aldridge, who is from Project 1947, um, which is a really interesting group. They, you know, they help, they're working to help preserve um, UFO documents and UFO history through, you know, collecting the files of different ufologists and whatnot. So, um, you know, Jan's a very interesting, you know, gentleman. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing him talk a lot. Excellent. Very good. And give us your website one more time, if you would. It's www. New Hampshire UFO Research dot dot com. Very good, Ryan. Thanks. Uh, thanks for a very interesting conversation, and uh, wish you a good evening. And we'll be in touch. Thanks a lot, Paul. I had a great time. Great, thank you. Have a good night. Okay, so many thanks to our producer Steve Bianchi, a major theological figure here at ON. And next week, June seventeenth, the great Bill Burns of History Channel's UFO Hunters, then publisher of UFO Magazine, will be my co-host for an open line show on the UFO subject. So get your UFO questions in now to Paul at behindtheparanormal.com, or use the question form at our show site behindtheparanormal.com. And on our CBS Radio edition on Sunday, June 16th, in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Windsor, and Seattle, Vancouver, and on Radio.com, Ben and I will welcome three listeners of varying backgrounds to share their out-of-the-body experiences. Very good. All right, so uh, we uh, wanted to just tell you, of course, about my books, uh, Footsteps in the Attic, Faces at the Window, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny, and for those of you local folks, Rhode Island, a genial history, you can get those all at um, the website, uh, BehindTheParanormal.com, or um, our other site, NewEnglandGhosts.com, and check those out. And we leave you this evening with a thought from our dear old friend, Albert Einstein. Concern for man and his fate must always form the chief interest of all technical endeavors. Never forget this in the midst of your diagrams and equations, unquote. I'm Paul Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. We will see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of 
Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.